0: Alexander the Great, king of Macedon, pupil of Aristotle, conqueror of most of the known world in his time, was one of the world's great young leaders. After years of exercising military pomp and prowess and after extending his kingdom from Macedonia to Egypt, and from Cyprus to India. He wept when there seemed to be no more world to conquer. Then, as evidence of just how ephemeral such power is, Alexander caught a fever and died at 33 years of age. The vast kingdom he had gained virtually died with him. Quite a different young leader also died at what seems such an untimely age of 33. He likewise was a king, a pupil, and a conqueror. Yet he received no honors from man, achieved no territorial conquests, rose to no political station. So far as we know, he never held a sword nor wore even a single piece of armor. But the kingdom he established still flourished some 2,000 years later. His power was not of this world. The differences between Alexander and this equally young Nazarene are many. But the greatest difference is in their ultimate victories. Alexander conquered lands, peoples, principalities, and earthly kingdoms. But he who is called the perfect leader, he who has and is the light and life of the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, conquered what neither Alexander nor any other could defeat or overcome. Jesus of Nazareth conquered death. Against the medals and monuments of centuries of man's fleeting victories stands the only monument necessary to mark the eternal triumph, an empty Garden Tomb. Last week, we and all the rest of the Christian world celebrated Easter. In our great General Conference of the Church, we lengthen the Easter season today to remember him and honor this pivotal event in the lives of all mankind. As Eastern, in the Northern, as Eastern in the Northern Hemisphere ushers in an awakening of life following the barrenness of winter, so Christ's resurrection ushers in the blessing of immortality and the possibility of eternal life—his empty tomb proclaims to all the world, He is not here, but is risen. These words contain all the hope, assurance, and belief necessary to sustain us in our challenging and sometimes grief-filled lives. Easter is the celebration of the free gift of immortality given to all men, restoring life and healing all wounds. Though all will die as part of the eternal plan of growth and development, nevertheless we can all find comfort in the psalmist's statement. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. It was Job who posed what might be called the question of the ages If a man die, shall he live again? Christ censer rings down through time to this very hour. Because I live, we shall live again also. Even with the logic of nature's regeneration and even with the testimony of that empty garden tomb, there are still those who feel the grave is a final destination. But the doctrine of the Resurrection is the single most fundamental and crucial doctrine in the Christian religion. It cannot be overemphasized nor can it be disregarded Without the Resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes a litany of wise sayings and seemingly unexplainable miracles, but sayings and miracles with no ultimate triumph. No, the ultimate triumph is in the ultimate miracle. For the first time in the history of mankind, one who was dead raised himself into living immortality. He was the Son of God, the Son of our immortal Father in heaven, and His triumph over physical and spiritual death is the good news of every Christ- that every Christian tongue should speak. The eternal truth is that Jesus Christ arose from the, t- the grave and was the first fruits of the resurrection. The witnesses of this wonderful occurrence cannot be impeached. Among the chosen witnesses, are the Lord's Apostles. Indeed, the call to the holy apostleship is one of bearing witness to the world of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith said, The fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets, Concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. Peter one of the apostles chosen by the Master during his ministry made these statements concerning the role of the apostles as witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Ye denied the Holy One and the just, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is, uh, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. The Apostle Paul commented on what Peter had stated about the Apostles being witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And these are his words. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, And he was seen many days of them which came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. On Mars Hill in Athens, Paul said, God hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And before King Agrippa, he asked this question. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Paul bore his apostolic witness to the Resurrection, again in his letter to the Saints at Corinth. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. In Christ shall all be made alive. I humbly testify of my privilege to bear the holy apostleship and to work daily with a modern quorum of twelve apostles who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to go forth as special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. And so have the apostles always testified. In our own day, apostles and prophets are carrying on the work of bearing witness to the world world of Jesus Christ, if I may have the privilege, I wish to repeat what President Marion G. Romney, the president of our present apostolic quorum, said concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Not long ago he made this statement to a general conference of the Church. At this Easter season, I am grateful for this opportunity to bear witness to the Resurrection of Jesus and to set forth, in part at least, the basis upon which that witness rests. He is risen. He is not here. These words, eloquent in their simplicity, announce the most significant event of recorded history. The Resurrection of the Lord Jesus, an event so extraordinary that even the apostles who had been most intimately associated with Jesus in His early ministry and who had been carefully taught of the coming event, had difficulty grasping the reality of its full significance. The first account which reached their ears seemed to them as idle talk idle tales as well they might for millions of men had lived and died before that day in every hill and dale men's bodies mouldered in the dust but until that first Easter morning not one had risen from the grave that the world that the whole of his mortal life moved toward this consummation he had repeatedly taught it was foreshadowed in his statement about laying down his life and taking it up again to the sorrowing martha he had said I am the Resurrection and the Life. And to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The evidence that Jesus was resurrected is conclusive. To the testimony of President Romney, And the witness of my brethren, I add my own apostolic witness, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He was born into mortality and fulfilled His ministry as related in the scriptures which record His birth his life, his teachings, and his commandments. In teaching his apostles, Christ made known to them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. So it was. He was crucified and placed in the tomb. On the third day He did arise to live again, the Savior of all mankind and the firstfruits of the Resurrection. Through this atoning sacrifice, all men shall be saved from the grave and shall live again. This always has been the testimony of the apostles, to which I add my witness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: Since my previous medical work had taken Sister Nelson and me to a number of developing nations, we have been exposed to many challenging scenes. In one country, so many people were sleeping in the streets and on sidewalks that we literally had to step over them as we walked. In another nation, our compassion was stretched almost to the breaking point as we yearned to help countless people in need. Young mothers with babies bundled on their backs begged for money while paddling their little sampan boats, which served both as their shelter and as their mode of transportation. And oh, how our hearts ached for young men and women of another country who, one by one, were strapped as beasts of, as beasts of burden to wooden-wheeled carts heavily laden with weighty cargo. As far as our eyes could see, the endless caravan of vehicles continued, pulled by the dint of human toil. Although reasons vary according to time and place, the poor and the needy have nearly always been present. Regardless of cause, our Heavenly Father is concerned for them. They are all his children. He loves and cares for them. Lessons from the Old Testament remind us that when the Lord sent prophets to call Israel back from apostasy, in almost every instance, one of the first charges made was that the poor had been neglected. Scriptures teach us that the poor, especially widows, orphans, and strangers, have long been the concern of God and the godly. The poor have been especially favored by the law. Old Testament teachings authorized poor persons at harvest time to glean after the reapers. At fruit-picking time, what was left hanging on branches belonged to the poor. In the sabbatical seventh year and in the jubilee fiftieth year, land was not planted nor tilled, and what grew of itself was free for the hungry. To those who cared for the poor, blessings were promised. The Lord would deliver them in time of trouble. Truths were taught by these Proverbs. He that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. The righteous considereth the cause of the poor, but the wicked regardeth not to know it. During the Savior's earthly ministry, he reemphasized his timeless concern for the poor. Remember the reply the Lord gave to the question of the rich man. If thou wilt be perfect, Jesus answered, go and sell all that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. In one of the Master's precious parables, he illustrated this doctrine with the story of one who was hungry and was given meat, another who was thirsty and given drink, and a stranger who was welcomed. The Lord related those as favors to him when he taught, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And when they were not ministered unto, he admonished, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. Indeed, the Church in the New Testament times also had a binding obligation to care for the poor. The Book of Mormon repeatedly declares this doctrine. From it we learn that care of the poor is an obligation that we take upon ourselves at the time of baptism, the prophet Alma so taught. "...Ye are desirous to come into the fold of God, and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light." Yea, and you are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things even unto death. Serve him and keep his commandments. End of quotation. Every person so baptized and who receives the gift of the Holy Ghost, which seals the ordinance, is under solemn covenant with the Lord to obey His commandments. Caring for the poor is one of those commandments. Surely in Book of Mormon times, members of the Church had a sacred obligation to care for the poor. Few if any of the Lord's instructions are stated more often or given greater emphasis than the commandment to care for the poor and the needy. Our dispensation is no exception. In December 1830, the very year in which The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized, the Lord declared that the poor and the meek shall have the gospel preached unto them, and they shall be looking forth to the time of my coming, which is nigh at hand. Bishops were designated, and their duties defined. They shall look to the poor and the needy, and administer to their relief that they shall not suffer. In 1831, the Lord said, Remember the poor. Inasmuch as ye impart of your substance to the poor, ye will do it unto me. A little later, he again declared, Visit the poor and the needy and administer their relief. Later the same year, he warned, Woe unto you, rich men, that will not give of your substance to the poor, for your riches will canker your souls. With these teachings throbbing in our ears, stated and restated in accounts to all people in all days of recorded scripture, let our thoughts return to the homeless, the beggars in boats, human beasts of burden, and to multitudes stricken with poverty. Is it possible to be faithful to our solemn obligation to care for the poor and the needy, to lift them and to love them? Worldwide? Where shall we begin? When? How? Hear the answer of Almighty God. I, the Lord, stretched out the heavens, built the earth, my very handiwork, and all things therein are mine. And it is my purpose to provide for my saints, for all things are mine but it must needs be done in mine own way. And behold, this is the way that I, the Lord, have decreed to provide for my saints, that the poor shall be exalted and that the rich are made low. For the earth is full, and there is enough to spare. Yea, I prepared all things, and have given unto children of men to be agents unto themselves." Therefore, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. End of the Lord's quotation. I repeat the Lord's prescription, but it must needs be done in mine own way. We begin where we are now, and work according to His plan. His own way includes these principles. Women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance, and all children have claim upon their parents, and after that they have claim upon the Church or upon the Lord's storehouse if their parents have not. And the storehouse shall be kept by the consecrations of the Church, and the widows and orphans shall be provided for, as also the poor. An important part of the Lord's storehouse is maintained as a year's supply, stored, where possible, in the homes of faithful families of the Church. Now some may ask, What about those who are poor because they are idle and unwilling to work? They should heed these words of warning, Thou shalt not be idle, for he that is idle shall not eat the bread, nor wear the garments of the laborer. Woe unto you, poor men, who will not labor with your hands! A judgment of worthiness is made by the bishop, and ultimately by the Lord, as taught by Nephi. With righteousness shall the Lord God judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Ours is not to judge. Ours is a covenantal obligation to care for the poor and the needy to prepare for their rejoicing when the Messiah shall come again. The Lord's own way includes first reliance on self, then the family. As parents care for their children, they in turn may reciprocate when parents become less able. Family pride promotes solicitude for each member, taking priority over other assistance. If family can't help. The Lord's own way includes the Church organization. The bishop is assisted by priesthood quorums and good sisters of the Relief Society, organized to look to the wants of the poor, searching after objects of charity and administering to their wants. Members of priesthood quorums and groups have a duty to rehabilitate spiritually and temporally their erring or unfortunate brethren. While a bishop extends aid to one temporarily out of work, the quorum arranges for his employment until fully self-supporting again. Now, as individual members of the Church, you and I participate in the Lord's own way. At least once a month, we fast and pray and contribute generous offerings to funds that enable bishops to disperse aid. This is part of the law of the gospel. Each of us truly can help the poor and the needy now, and wherever they are, and we too will be blessed and protected from apostasy by so doing. Now, Limitations do exist. Measures of relief are at best temporary. Storehouses can provide only for some temporal needs. All people cannot be brought to the same living standards, and all things needed cannot be achieved by goods or gold to care fully for the poor. The poor must change. As they are taught and abide doctrines of deity, spiritual strength will come that enlightens the mind and liberates the soul from the yoke of bondage. When people of the earth accept the gospel of Christ, their attitudes change, their understanding and capabilities increase. A poet sensed the great power of the Spirit of the Lord to lift an individual when he wrote, The chief of all thy wondrous works, supreme of all thy plan, Thou hast put an upward reach within the heart of man. That upward reach, drawn from a knowledge of divine doctrines, transforms souls. May I share an illustration with you? Once Sister Nelson and I were invited to the humble home of Polynesian saints who had relatively recently joined the Church. By walking carefully on wooden planks, we approached their house, built on wooden piles emerging from the floor of the sea. We climbed a ladder to enter their little one-room dwelling. As we were invited to be seated on freshly woven grass mats, we could peek through holes in the floor and view seawater below. That home was starkly devoid of furniture, except for a used sewing machine provided by Sisters of the Relief Society. But the love and warmth of this special family were apparent as our visit continued. We would like to sing for you, the father said through an interpreter. He put one arm about his wife and the other about his children, as did his wife. Five little ones, dressed in newly sewn clothing, joined their parents in singing songs the father had composed, concluding, he said, These songs express our feelings of deep gratitude. Before we joined the Church, we had so little. Now." We have so much. While wiping tears from our moistened cheeks, Sister Nelson and I looked at each other, comprehending that the gospel brings spiritual wealth, which may bear little relation at first to tangible abundance. And Conversely, people with plenty can be spiritually poor, yet the Lord is concerned for them all. Missionary work throughout the world is part of His plan. It brings the light of the gospel to those who embrace the truth. Then as saints learn and obey the commandments of God, they will prosper. This promise has been recorded by prophets throughout time and diverse places. Working with a will, They gain a new appreciation of who they are and of their eternal worth. Righteousness, independence, thrift, industry, self-reliance become personal goals. These qualities transform lives. In time, in the Lord's own way, the poor will no longer be poor. The Church of Jesus Christ has been restored to the earth. The power of God is among men. Angelic ministrants communicate to legal administrators once again. A living prophet, the everlasting priesthood, covenant people, and the Lord's own way are upon the earth to bless mankind all races, in every clime, yes, all people, young and old, wealthy and poor, now and forevermore. This I testify in the name of
2: Jesus Christ. Amen. Five years ago, I was asked to be the Managing Director of the Welfare Services Department of the Church, Within a very few days, I received a phone call from President Marion G. Romney. He said, Brother Pace, do you know anything about welfare? Under the circumstances, this was a sobering question, and I responded, President, I'm sure I have much to learn. He asked me to set aside 3 p.m. each Friday for a meeting with him where we could discuss welfare principles. When I arrived on the first Friday, President Romney's secretary went into his office and announced, Glenn Pace is here, President. He replied, Oh, yes, I'd like to see him if he doesn't stay too long. On my second visit, with the if he doesn't stay too long still ringing in my ears, I covered two items and then started shuffling my feet and papers as a subtle signal that I was about ready to leave. The president leaned across his desk with that twinkle in his eye and a chuckle in his voice and said, Brother Pace, am I getting the impression you think you have something better to do? (laughs) How I cherish those precious hours and sessions spent with a man who has dedicated 50 years of service to the kingdom, especially in the area of welfare. He helped me to know President Harold B. Lee, President J. Reuben Clark, and other great leaders who emphasized the principles of welfare. I was counseled to measure all recommendations by the stated purpose of the welfare program as given by Heber J. Grant in 1936. He, of course, would quote it in memory. Our primary purpose was to set up a system as far as it might be possible where the curse of idleness would be done away with the evils of a dole abolished, an independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect be once more established amongst our people. The aim of the Church is to help the people to help themselves. Many times President Romney emphasized that the notion of the welfare program beginning in 1936 was a myth. He quoted President Lee, who said, There wasn't any beginning to the welfare program. There isn't any ending. There are only the middles, no endings, no beginnings, only middles. He quoted scriptures relating to the commandment to seek after the poor, scriptures given to the Saints in Kirtland, Ohio, scriptures given to the Saints in Jackson County, Missouri, and these scriptures given at a time when almost all members of the Church were poor. He pointed out what was done relative to keeping these commands in Nauvoo in the 1840s what was done in Utah in the late 1890s and in the West in the early 1900s. He quoted Book of Mormon scriptures, how he loved the Book of Mormon. He quoted New Testament scriptures, pointing out that the Savior spent a considerable amount of his time seeking after and helping the poor and the needy. He made the process sound so simple Often he would scold me and say, Brother Pace, don't make things so complicated. All we've been trying to do is make our people self-reliant. Because the more self-reliant one is, the better able he is to serve. And the more he serves, the more he is sanctified. Over the years, there have been numerous approaches with a common goal of helping people become self-reliant. The welfare plan unveiled to inspired leaders in 1936 has become famous, and it is held up as an enviable example by leaders of other religions as well as government officials in high places. As great as the various programs of the Church are, they carry with them a potential danger. If we are not careful, it is possible to get so wrapped up in the program we forget the principles. We can fall into the trap of mistaking traditions for principles and confusing programs with their objectives. I remember one Saturday morning I was on my way to fulfill an assignment on a welfare farm. We were to clean the weeds out of an irrigation ditch. My route took me past the home of an elderly widow living in my ward, and she was out in her front yard weeding her lawn. The temperature was almost in the mid-80s already. For a fleeting moment, I thought I should stop and lend a helping hand. However, I was able to move on with a free conscience because I had an assignment to work on the welfare farm. I wonder what would have happened if I had followed the spontaneous prompting of the Spirit and unleashed genuine compassion on her benefit. But I couldn't do that. I hadn't been assigned. How much we need spontaneous, genuine compassion. In 1983, some major modifications were made to the welfare program being followed in the United States and Canada. In making the announcement, President Hinckley said, Permit me to say at the outset that that which you will hear has been considered in depth in all of its implications by the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve. We reaffirm the basic principles of the welfare program. There will be no departure from those foundation principles. We feel the need to emphasize with greater clarity the obligation for members of the Church to become more independent and self-reliant. Reliant to increase personal and family responsibility, to cultivate spiritual growth, and to be f- more fully involved in Christian service. Quote. Since these changes have been announced, some have asked if the Church is abandoning or de-emphasizing welfare. This question is common only to those who are having trouble distinguishing the difference between a principle and a program. At the conclusion of a General Welfare Services Executive Committee meeting, where I felt I had waxed absolutely eloquent in discussing farms, trucks, silos, and canneries, President Romney invited me into his office for an unscheduled meeting. He asked one question. Brother Pace, why is it I never hear you talk about principles and doctrines anymore? I have not been the same since I heard that penetrating inquiry. From that time until my release as the Managing Director of Welfare Services three years later, I vowed to be more diligent in evaluating programs to see if they were still accomplishing their major objective relative to principles. Still true is President Lee's statement. Nobody changes the principles and doctrines of the Church except the Lord by revelation, but methods change as the inspired direction comes to those who preside at a given time. You may be sure that your brethren who preside are praying most earnestly, and we do not move until we have the assurance, so far as lies within our power, that what we do has the seal of divine approval. As I travel into various countries, the question that I am most often asked is, When are we going to have the welfare program in my country? I respond by asking the following questions. Do you have a Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price? Do you have bishops or branch presidents? Do you have people here with needs? Do you have people who can help? When they answer yes, I explain they already have all the ingredients necessary to activate a welfare program in their country. During a trip to South America a few years ago, I spoke with the stake president whose stake had experienced 50% unemployment during the previous three years. I knew the stake had received less than $200 from the area office during that period. I asked him how the members had been able to survive without a large infusion of outside help. His answer was the families had helped each other, not just father, mother, sons and daughters, but uncles, aunts, cousins. When a cousin got a job, the money earned went to benefit everyone. In addition, ward members looked after each other and shared what they had, however so meager. With tears in his eyes, he explained how close his stake members were to each other and to the Lord. Their spirituality had increased manyfold. Did they have the welfare program? Absolutely, and in its purest form. I feared we've learned too much over the years about programs at the expense of insufficient understanding of principles. If we had learned more principles, priesthood leaders all over the world would be solving local problems with local resources without waiting for something to come from church headquarters. Members would be helping each other without waiting for an assignment. Programs blindly followed lead us to a discipline to do good. But principles understood and practiced bring us to a disposition to do good. I visited Ethiopia last year with Elder Ballard, and we came home with pictures of degradation and poverty etched indelibly in our minds. However, I am haunted more often with memories of the conditions under which some of our own members are living in other areas of the world. If every member could travel and observe these conditions, our fast offerings would increase substantially. Moroni was prophesying of our day when he said, Behold, I speak unto you as if ye were present, and yet ye are not. But behold, Jesus Christ has shown you unto me, and I know your doing. For behold, ye do love money, and your substance, and your fine apparel and the adorning of your churches more than you love the poor and the needy, and the sick and the afflicted." Ouch. That's smarts. But it's right there in the Book of Mormon, and it's speaking of our time. I have great faith in the generosity and compassion of the membership of this Church. Never has it been demonstrated more clearly than during the special fasts held in January and November of last year. Over $10 million was raised for people we don't even know. Our members do respond when they are aware of a need. Brothers and sisters, that need has not passed. There is much to be done, even among our own people. Poverty is a relative term. It means something much different in one country than in another. There is no common solution or program to every situation. However, principles are eternal. We cannot bring everyone to the same economic level. To do so would violate principles and foster dependence rather than independence. People living in each country have the primary responsibility for solving their own problems. They must sacrifice for each other because, as the Prophet Joseph Smith said, a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation." Quote. Members of the Church everywhere should ask themselves not, What can the Church do for me? But what can I do for myself, for the Church, and for my neighbor? The solutions to poverty are extremely complex and the balance between too much aid and not enough is very elusive. Our compassion can lead to failure if we give aid without creating independence and self-reliance in the recipient. However, there is a state of human misery below which no Latter-day Saint should descend as long as others are living in abundance. Can some of us continue to maintain affluent lifestyles when Some others of us cannot afford chlorine to purify their water. Can we ignore the very most basic temporal needs of our brothers and sisters and profess belief in Joseph F. Smith's statement that a religion that has not the power to save people temporally cannot be depended upon to save them spiritually? In 1936, there was a depression in the United States. Based on principles, a program was designed to fit the circumstances. Today, we are an international Church. In many countries, Saints face problems far more serious than those. Using welfare principles, solutions can be found to the challenges of today and tomorrow. May the Lord bless President Marion G. Romney and those with whom he labored for bringing to us an understanding of welfare principles. And may we be as successful in meeting the challenges of our generation as our predecessors were in meeting theirs, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
3: I wish to speak of the basic principles that keep our feet on the ground economically. This is important to our happiness. Let us examine ourselves and, like pilots in the sky, take our bearings to see if we were on course financially. We must build on sound principles. The bedrock principle of which I speak is that the responsibility for welfare rests with me and my family. In 1936 the First Presidency said, in a great statement of purpose, the aim of the Church is to help people help themselves. Some of us are children of the Great Depression in the United States over 50 years ago. Most of us who pass through that period will never forget the difficult economic times almost everyone experienced. At that time, many banks failed. People lost their life savings. A great many were unemployed and some of them lost their homes because they could not pay the mortgage. Many went hungry. If we didn't eat our oatmeal cereal for breakfast, we would often have it fried for lunch or for dinner. Such widespread economic problems could come again. But in any event, at any time, we could meet with a personal calamity such as sickness or an accident which could limit or destroy our income. The purpose of the welfare program is to care for the poor and the needy and, by obedience to gospel principles, make the members of the Church strong and self-reliant. At the center of caring for the poor and the needy in a worldwide Church is a generous contribution to the fast offerings and personal and family preparedness. At the very heart of taking care of our own needs is our own energy and ability, with the help to and from our own families. I should like to discuss five prescriptions which, if followed, will make each of us better able to control our destinies. First prescription, practice thrift and frugality. There is a wise old saying, Eat it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. Thrift is a practice of not wasting anything. Some people are able to get by because of the absence of expense. They have their shoes resold, they patch, they mend, they sew, and they save not only money. They avoid installment buying and make purchases only after saving enough to pay cash, thus avoiding interest charges. Frugality means to practice careful economy. The old couplet, waste not, want not, still has much merit. Frugality requires that we live within our income and save a little for a rainy day, which always seems to come. It means avoiding debt and carefully limiting credit purchasing. It is important to learn to distinguish between wants and needs. It takes self-discipline to avoid the buy-now-pay-later philosophy, and to adopt the save-now-and-buy-later practice. There are some investment counselors who urge speculative credit practices described as leverage, credit wealth, borrow yourself rich. Such practices may work successfully for some, but at best they succeed only for a time. An economic reversal always seems to come. And many who have followed such practices find themselves in financial ruin and their lives in shambles. President Ezra Taft Benson has stated, A large proportion of families with personal debt have no liquid assets whatsoever to fall back upon. What troubles they invite if their income should suddenly be cut off or seriously reduced. We all know of families who have obligated themselves for more than they could pay. "Close quote." Owning a home free of debt is an important goal of provident living, although it may not be a realistic possibility for some. A mortgage on a home leaves a family unprotected against severe financial storms. Homes that are free and clear of mortgages and liens cannot be foreclosed on. When there are good financial times, it is most, the most opportune time to retire our debts and pay installments in advance. It is a truth that the borrower is the servant to the lender. Many young people have become so hypnotized by the rhythm of monthly payments that they scarcely think of the total cost of what they buy. They immediately want things that took their parents years to acquire— It is not a pathway to happiness to assume debts for a big home, an expensive car, or the most stylish clothes, just so that we can keep up with the Joneses. Payment of obligations is a sacred trust. Most of us will never be rich, but we can feel greatly unburdened when we are debt-free. Second prescription, seek to be independent. The Lord said that it is important for the Church to stand independent above all other creatures beneath the celestial of the world. Remember the Church, our counsel, to be independent. Independence means many things. It means being free of drugs that addict and habits that bind and diseases that curse. It also means being free of personal debt and of the interest and caring charges required by debt the world over. President J. Reuben Clark's classic statement on interest bears repeating, quote, interest never sleeps, nor sickens, nor dies. It never goes to the hospital. It works on Sundays and holidays. It never takes a vacation. It never visits, nor travels. It takes no pleasure. It is never laid off work, nor discharged from employment. It never pays taxes, it buys no food, it wears no clothes, it is unhoused and without a home, and so has no repairs, no replacement, no shingling, plumbing, painting, or whitewashing. It has neither wife, children, father, mother, nor kinfolk to watch over and care for. It has no expense of living. It has neither weddings, nor births, nor deaths. It has no love, no sympathy. It is as hard and soulless as a granite cliff. Once in debt, interest is your companion every minute of the day and night. You cannot shun it or slip away from it. You cannot dismiss it. It yields to neither entreaties, demands, or orders. And whenever you get in its way or cross its course and fail to meet its demands, it crushes you. End quote. Extended economic dependence humiliates a man if he is strong and debilitates him if he is weak. Payment of our tithes and offerings can help us become independent. President Nathan Eldon Tanner said, Paying tithing is discharging a debt to the Lord. If we obey this commandment, we are promised that we will prosper in the land. This prosperity consists of more than material goods. It may include enjoying good health and vigor of mind. It means family, includes family solidarity and spiritual increase. End of quote. It is my firm belief after many years of close observation that those who honestly pay their tithes and offerings do prosper and get along better in almost every way. It is my testimony that in discharging this debt to the Lord, one enjoys great personal satisfaction. Unfortunately, this great satisfaction will be known only by those who have the faith and strength to keep this commandment. Third prescription, be industrious. To be industrious involves energetically managing our circumstances to our advantage. It also means to be enterprising and to take advantage of opportunities. Industry requires resourcefulness, A good idea can be worth years of struggle. A friend who owned some fertile fields complained to his sister about his lack of means. What about your crops? asked the sister. The impoverished man replied, There was so little snow in the mountains that I thought there would be a drought, and so I did not plant. As it turned out, unforeseen spring rains made the crops bountiful for those industrious enough to plant. It is a denial of the divinity within us to doubt our potential and our possibilities. The great poet Virgil said, They conquer who believe they can. Alma testified, speaking of a just God, For I know that he granteth unto men according to their desire. To be industrious involves work. It involves creativity. It also involves rest. It involves both aspects of Sabbath day of servants. On the one hand, we are to labor six days. On the other hand, we are to rest one day. This rest will leave us with more energy and resources to make the rest of the week more productive and fruitful. Fourth prescription, become self-reliant. I have always admired those who have the ability and skills to make things with their hands. When these skills were passed out in the previous world, I must have been out to lunch. (laughs) The ability to make repairs around the home, to improvise, to care for our own machinery, to keep our automobiles running is not only an economic advantage, but it also provides much emotional resilience. President Spencer W. Kimball counseled. I hope that we understand that while having a garden, for instance, is often useful in reducing food costs and making available delicious fruits and vegetables, it does much more than this. Who can gauge the value of that special chat between daughter and dad as they weed or water the garden? How do we evaluate the good that comes from the obvious lessons of planting and cultivating and the eternal law of the harvest? How do we measure the family togetherness and cooperating that must accompany successful canning? Yes, we are laying up resources in store, but perhaps the greater good is contained in the lessons of life, we learn, as we live providently and extend to our children their pioneer heritage." This heritage includes teaching our children how to work. Fifth Prescription. Strive to have a year's supply of food and clothing. The Council to have a year's supply of basic food, clothing, and commodities was given fifty years ago and has been repeated many times since. Every father and mother are the family storekeepers. They should store whatever their own family would like to have in case of an emergency. Most cannot afford to store a year's supply of luxury items but find it more practical to store staples that might keep us from starving in case of an emergency. Surely we all hope that the hour of need will never come. Some have said we have followed this counsel in the past and have never had need to use our year's supply, so we have difficulty keeping this in mind as a major priority. Perhaps following this counsel, could be the reason why they have not needed to use their reserve. By continued rotation of the supply, it can be kept usable with no waste. The Church cannot be expected to provide for every one of its millions of members in case of public or personal disaster. It is therefore necessary that each home and family do what they can to assume the responsibility for their own hour of need. If we do not have the resources to acquire a year's supply, then we can begin, we can strive to begin with having one month's supply. I believe that if we are provident and wise in the management of our personal and family affairs and are faithful, God will sustain us through our trials. He has revealed, For the earth is full, and there is enough and to spare. Yea, I have prepared all things, and have given unto the children of men to be agents unto themselves. Much of our own well-being is bound up in the caring for others. Good King Benjamin, speaking through the pages of the Book of Mormon, counsels, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. You may ask, how can I discern which of the prophetic utterances of this conference have a particular message for me? My answer is, you can know. You can know by the whisperings of the Holy Spirit if you righteously and earnestly seek to know. Your own inspiration will be an unerring vibration through the companionship of the Holy Ghost. As the Lord spoke to Elijah, this will come not in the great strong wind, nor in the earthquake, nor in the fire, but in a still, small voice. This will help us, if necessary, to make the required changes in our lives and lifestyles to get on to a sure course. The parable of the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish, has both a spiritual and a temporal application. Each of us has a lamp to light the way, but it requires that every one of us put the oil in our own lamps to produce that light. It is not enough to sit idly by and say, The Lord will provide. He has promised that they who are wise and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide will have the earth given unto them. It is further promised. The Lord shall be in their midst, and his glory shall be upon them, and he shall be their king and their lawgiver. May it ever be so, I pray humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah.